welcome back to the Ottawa studios of Inside My Canoe Head. Today, we're going to do a bit of reflection on war. This is honor about the one-year anniversary of the Ukraine conflict of the Russian invasion of the Ukrainian mainland. And I thought I would take some time to reflect on humanity, why you don't want war and why we're in this position And then a little few words about what that should mean for your individual preparedness. So, big topic, important topic, grab yourself a beverage. Let's get at her. So yeah, welcome back. Listen, uh, continue to to drop me your your suggestions and ideas uh, through the website, through any of my social media, www.com. Inside my canoehead.ca or uh, www.preparednesslabs.ca. Send me an email at jeff at preparednesslabs.ca or any one of the socials. Drop me a note. Let's get into a conversation. Appreciate all of your continued support and your great ideas and, and your commentary across all spectrums of commentary. All right, listen, today, you know, honor about is the one year anniversary of the most predictable war I think this world has had in close to 100 years. And I say that quite honestly because as a student of public policy and as a follower of Vladimir Putin's career since he took over from Boris Yeltsin in the year 2000, I actually have the uh, the newspaper here in my basement of the day that uh, this little former mayor of Leningrad shows up uh, and takes over uh, St. Petersburg, sorry, takes over the head of the Kremlin. Who is this guy? Former KGB FSB. And here we are. So the first, when you talk about war, you have to understand in today's world, uh, it's it's a diverse experience of humanity on this planet. I am 100% insulated here in the city of Ottawa in the middle of North America, protected by the southern neighbor with the largest, most robust and capable military machine humanity has ever created. With an anti-tank ditch on the left and the right called the Pacific and Atlantic Ocean, anything short of a nuclear conflict, I am 100% insulated from it, right? So... My experience uh, as a normal Joe Q or Jane Q public within the North American context, except for Mexico, we have no experience or exposure to a threat of invasion, assault, rockets, shelling, or anything like that. Now, I come to this perspective as a veteran of war, somebody who's been to war, somebody who's seen war, who's smelled, tasted, and experienced it. So, of course, my perspective is going to be different than the average North American. But when you look at how humanity exists around the world, the state of conflict is pretty much ever-present. The difficulty is, is when you get bastions or islands of calm where there isn't conflict like you have in North America. Central America has had decades of wars and conflicts that overthrow governments and coup attempts and military insurrections. South America has had a reasonable amount of peace, but not really. When you talk about Argentina uh, and Brazil, there's been a lot of uh, drug trade in the northern parts of 
South America. Africa is just one big massive poop show. It's it's nonstop conflict, top to bottom, left to right. The slaughtering of civilians is just a natural daily occurrence on that continent. You look at the Middle East and the struggles for power in the Middle East, especially the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Uh, I don't care where you sit on that spectrum. Uh, there is no hope for permanent peace there, short of a massive military intervention, a couple of million troops from a foreign power to impose peace. Other than that, there's really no solution. And you can go to pretty much anywhere on the face of this earth, uh, including Russia. Russia has been invaded pretty much steadily since the 1700s and before that by the Swedes and various other empires have continually rolled across that great plain. Uh, that is starts in the middle of Poland and heads east across the Baltics, across Belarus, across Ukraine, and right to Moscow is just one big driving expedition. There are no geographical barriers pretty much to having an assault. So, you know, Russia's been invaded nonstop for hundreds and hundreds of years, and therefore so has Ukraine, Belarus, Poland. Just ask the Poles what it's like to be invaded from both sides at once. And their society still very much remembers the invasions of the Second World War. So when you think about humanity from an honest perspective of the human experience, war destruction and all of the horrors that go with that is just a normal part of humanity. Except if you happen to live, like I said, in one of these bastions of these islands of relative peace. The problem that we have now with humanity is we're at a generational point. The last major guerre mondiale, the last major world war, ended in 1945, right? Okay, that was supposed to be the war to end all wars. I know they said that after the First World War, but the horrible ending of the Second World War brought forth the Bretton Woods idea, the reorganization of the world into a peaceful Cold War Alliance, And I say that because the Cold War was an incredibly peaceful era other than the whole boatload of proxy wars that happened and the slaughtering that happened around the world. But in general, the vast majority of people on this earth experienced some form of peace and economic upward mobility in the years since 1945. Uh, we try this thing called globalism. Uh, it's dead now. Globalism is over. Uh, we are reorganizing to something akin right now to what we refer to as the 1930s, getting back to regional focus. Um, and we start to see the breakdown of the world order. And, and people say, yeah, global world over global world government. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring to we've gotten to the point now where the generation that experienced and lived through the horrors of the last world war is gone. They're not here anymore. The voices of reason, the voices to talk to us about the horrors of war at a massive global scale are all dead. Yeah, their voices are in history and in museums, but the bellicose calls, the drum 
playing, the drum, the saber rattling. Roll back 20 years and there would be a large number of voices calling for calm and peace. And these are the people that got us through a lot of the difficult challenges and times in the Cold War when we thought we were close to a major conflict. These are the people that remembered major conflict. They brought us back from the brink. They're all gone now. Humanity has no memory of global war. Humanity has no memory of not four or five coffins coming off of a plane, but 2,000 coffins a day arriving. That kind of death has not been brought to humanity for near 75 years, and people are just not experienced. People have nothing to reference it to. So those pounding the war drums are people who don't fight the wars. It's never the people who fight the wars that do that. I mean, right now, let's look at war does not come to us overnight. And I'm going to use the Ukrainian conflict as an example, right? We don't drive around a corner and find ourselves in a couple of minutes or a matter of days in a massive global conflict. Ukraine has been a sore point for the Russian Federation for a long time, right? So if you roll back a very, very quick history of NATO's expansion and Russia's desire, etc. So when the Soviet Union collapsed, right, all of the former Soviet republics at one point or another overthrew their dictators and became independent nations, right? And so the general agreement that happened between Gorbachev and Reagan and some of the immediate predecessors from there were simply around the idea that NATO was what it was, Russia is what it is, and there's going to be this big buffer of a whole bunch of independent countries that aren't really going to lean one way or another. They're just finding their way, and everybody's kind of happy with that, right? So you get if you look at the map of Europe, Eastern Europe becomes this big buffer area. And, of course, there'll be fights for control and government leaning left or right. But really what you have is a large buffer zone of neutral countries between the two. This all changed in 2004 expansion of NATO when a number of the southern countries, but mainly the Baltic countries, joined NATO. And all of a sudden, NATO was on the border of Russia, like right on the border of Russia. And if you know geography, that's the exact route that Russia has been invaded many, many times since the 1700s. There's no natural barrier. There's no major riverways. There are no major massive swampy areas. There's no major mountain ranges. It's just a straight shot drive from the Baltics to Moscow, and you can have it done in a handful of hours at highway speed, right? And why is that concerning? Well, look at the U.S. Monroe Doctrine. If you understand the U.S. Monroe Doctrine, it's around the 1930s when the U.S. kind of said, you know what, we will not tolerate anybody whatsoever forming a foreign military base in the Western Hemisphere. South America, Central America, and obviously North America are out of bounds for a foreign military base. The U.S. will not allow it. They'll crush it as soon as they find it. That's their Monroe Doctrine wrapped up in a couple of sentences, right? So you see the Cuban Missile Crisis. The end result was Russia was not going to have a military base on Cuba. World War III would have happened. 
absolutely, without question, the Americans would have invaded Cuba to prevent a foreign military base on Cuba, right? But apparently it's okay if NATO puts a base right on the border of Russia, right? So you have the American Monroe Doctrine, not in my backyard, we'll go to war if you do that. But then when NATO does it, don't worry, we're a peaceful alliance. We, we were just defensive. So I don't care where you sit on that. But in 2004, the Russian conversation, their experience and where they sat changed. And then take it to the 2014 coup in Ukraine when you saw a Western-leaning power. And every country has the right to determine this. But now you see a Ukraine that's starting to go westward, is talking about joining the European Union, is musing about joining NATO. And now you have a situation where immediately Russia reacts and takes Crimea and starts the insurgency in the Donetsk region, right? Because they need to destabilize the government because Russia can't go to sleep safely with a Western-leaning or a NATO-leaning government in Kiev. It just, it can't. It can't go to sleep that way. It's got NATO on its northern border. Uh, the only hope right now is it has a Belarus hanging around. It, it, it can't. It has four to 500 years of ground invasions across those routes. And every time you listen to NATO and they say they're a defensive alignment, de- defensive alliance only, <laughs> I've got a. I've got a swath of territory to sell you on that one. I'm not defending what Russia did. In no way, shape, or form is a an invasion of a foreign country justified. But get your freaking head out of a sand. This conflict was driving at us for the last 17 years, and nobody was paying attention, and nobody was listening, and nobody... St- seem to want to do anything to stop this conflict from happening. And now what do we have? Now let's get into the real world. You don't want war. You don't want war. I'm telling you from somebody who's experienced it and somebody who spent time well over a year in a war zone, you don't want those experiences, whether you're the individual slinging rounds down range Or, far worse, you're the civilian population in the middle of it. And if we look at today, no one's calling for peace. Look at your headlines. It's a year out of this war. Who is calling for peace? Where are, as Her Majesty the Queen said, God rest her soul, where are the statesmen? Where are the statesmen? Where's the shuttle diplomacy between capitals? Who's standing up and taking the lead at bringing peace to... All human conflicts are settled on a compromise. I don't get what I want. You don't get what you want. But we compromise to somewhere in the middle. Nobody's calling for peace. All that we have is the West is now saying they're all in on Ukraine. They're all in. Ukraine has said blatantly and clearly that they will not settle for any peace deal that shows a loss of territory. So Donetsk, Luhansk, whatever the regions are, they want their territory back. Russia, you can read doctrine back to 700 years. Russia is not leaving. There is no solution that sees Russian troops leaving Ukraine. They're just just never going 
to go away. So what do we have? We have a meat grinder. We have the cowards in NATO who are doing absolutely nothing but making sure that their military industrial complexes make massive amounts of money and profiteering. They're at, you know, I'm a former logistics officer. Let's be clear. They've had a great, great ex- exercise. The, the Americans are testing their reforger. If you're old enough to remember what a reforger is, it was the American resupply and reinforcement of Europe after a Soviet invasion of Western Germany and uh, into Western Europe. The Americans had this massive airlift and sea lift campaign to move huge amount of troops and munitions. Well, right now, the Americans are getting to practice a massive lift of logistics and ammunition across the world. There'd be no other reason to do this. Old stocks of ammunition are being expired. Old equipment is being consumed in a war instead of having to go through the normal decommissioning and salvage programs that are very, very expensive and time-consuming in Western militaries. The military-industrial complex is making a massive amount of money. Defense budgets are booming, and the defense economy is is going crazy. And, and all that's happening is the Ukrainians, Ukrainians are, being, are, are doing the dying and the killing, right? They're doing the killing and the dying. Ukrainians are dying in the tens of thousands, um, and, and Russians are dying in what's expected to be three to five times that rate. And we just have a massive, massive meat grinder. And NATO's entire idea here, and I understand the logic behind it. NATO's idea is, is if they can consume and grind down the entire Russian expeditionary capability of the military in Ukraine, then they won't have an opportunity to expand the conflict beyond Ukraine. Right. So NATO gets to kill all the Russians without having to die. They just get the Ukrainians to do the dying for them and they get rich as heck and don't. And, you know, I spent enough time around KBR and Floor and other American companies to know there's a lot of backroom deals going on right now about the massive hundreds of billions of dollars of contracts that will be made available to American companies to come in and, quote unquote, rebuild Ukraine when the conflict is over. And if you think this will be done quick, like I said, I've understood the logic of Putin and I've understood the logic of NATO and I've understood the logic of Ukraine. And in the middle of all of this, if you read Vladimir Putin, if you read a lot of his speeches and stuff going back on uh, his, he has stated a view that says roughly about 15% of a males in a generation are a suitable loss for Russia to get what has always been hers. So the loose translation of that is, is that Vladimir Putin in his mind thinks that about 2.2 million casualties is the acceptable level to be victorious in Ukraine. He's probably lost about 10% of that now. So if you think the war is near over and Russia's at a might, they've probably lost about 10% of the amount of people they're willing to kill to win. Is the West willing to lose 2 million people in a conflict? And if they, and if Ukraine only loses a quarter of what the Russians lose, then we're talking we have to kill about a half a million Ukrainians to get this done. Uh, Russia's history has always been the first year in conflict of any war that Russia's been in has been an absolute poop show. They, they're, they're, it's, you go back 
700 years and the first year sucks, right? So what you've seen right now is a standard Russian playbook uh, and they'll get it right and start coming back with the standard Russian. I'm just going to throw so many people at it. It doesn't matter what technology and the amount of guns and munition or tanks you have. I will simply overwhelm you with the amount of people I am willing to kill to win. The West is just doesn't comprehend the Russian military strategy. It's not that they're good. It's not that they're correct. It's not that they're righteous. It's that they're willing to kill 2 million people in this conflict, and they've only killed 200,000. Even if you go with the most outlandish estimates, none of them are over 200,000. And so they're at the 10% level. So what does this mean for you? What does this mean for you, an individual preparedness. It means a lot when you think about preparedness being made up of your own physical, mental, financial health, and your animalistic requirements. It thinks about framing this conflict in the sense that this is a conflict that exists on the other side of the world, likely far away from you. Um, Formulate your opinions based upon evidence. Seek out the evidence, not just what you hear in the media, but seek out evidence and make your thoughts known. But remember that in your own little world, we have the stoic dichotomy of control. What There are things I can control and there are things I can't control. And what I need to do is focus on the things I can't control. I can't control the conflict in Ukraine. It's horrible. I have many friends of Ukrainian descent and I feel for them. I I have experience. I know what this feels like. I know what the residents are going through. And I know what the soldiers are going through. You feel it in your bones. Once you've been to war, you never come back. The point is that in your own preparedness journey, you have to use this as an example of how you need to pay attention to the world around you. And it's like real estate. Location, location, location. If you live in Poland, war is likely coming to you. If you live in the Baltics, war is likely coming to you. Now, it may be cyber war. It may be an insurgency. Uh, It's likely only going to be those two because if Russia does try to invade a NATO country, uh, Russia loses 30 to 1 against NATO's power and we go nuclear. So Russia will destabilize the Baltic states. They will destabilize Poland. Uh, they'll use the standard tactics they've used for dozens of years, decades, and they will get in. Um, it's the same way that the Chinese are destabilizing the American youth through TikTok. Um, I use TikTok. I post on TikTok. But TikTok was designed just to that, to get the American youth and the American population standing, looking at TikToks all day instead of grinding it out, working hard and building an awesome, incredible, better society. People escape the society they don't like by looking at TikTok. It's a beautiful, wonderful Chinese communist plan that's in the long game. They're looking at 20 or 30 years of people addicted to TikTok or a platform similar to that and the ability of America to fight, the ability of America to respond is going to be lessened. Uh, So remember, preparedness is all about your location and where you live, right? If you want to live in peace and calm and tranquility and you're a European, I I can't tell you to leave your home country, but Portugal and Spain are pretty nice places to be right now. They're not going to get invaded. Neither is Italy. 
um, France is a fantastic place to be. They're one of these. France is the country in Europe that has the best likelihood and the highest degree of success in the 2030s when the when this decade of change is over and the world emerges to the new organization for the next 70 to 80 years. Um, France is the number one country in Europe that's going to come out on top. You know, France, Argentina, the United States of America, Turkey, India, Iran. These are the countries that are going to be uber successful 2030 plus uh, based on demographics, uh, energy, humanity, resources, and relationships. There and and you know it's all about geography. These are the countries that are going to be uber successful. Uh, figure them out. If you want to be successful, you have to be in a place. And if you're like me in North America, listen, we're, we're good here. Uh, other than nuclear conflict, we, we're not going to have to experience war. We're not going to have lived through war. Uh, we generate more than enough energy and electricity that we need. We generate more than enough food than we could ever consume in North America. Uh, we have a big enough, strong enough, and internalized economy where the United States, less somewhere between 4 and 6% of their GDP is net exports. So they could have a 4% loss in GDP and, and never export anything again. Like the American economy does not need the external world whatsoever, like full stop, right? It is perfectly independent and can be if it chooses. And as we piggyback on that here in Canada, we don't need the rest of the world. The rest of the world can burn. I mean, from a very insular perspective, so very much of your preparedness journey is focused on your location. Understand it. Understand the politics. And so how do you figure out what's likely to come down the pipe in the next five to seven years where you live? First, don't watch the news. Um, there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. And it's not just mainstream media. It is what it is. What you have to do is read the thinkers and don't read one thinker. Read several. Read Ray Dalio, Yuval Harari, read uh, Peter Zion, and, and many other thinkers, big thinkers. And what you do when you read five or six deep, big thinkers, what you get is a perspective. You start to see that the world is built upon what happens to you and in your life experience, it's going to be based upon geography. It's going to be based upon demographics. It's going to be based on your access to the necessary resources to create the things you need for life, your access to water and your access to food resources, right? And then regional relationships. That's it, right? It, it doesn't matter what political party is in power. And I know we get bent out of shape about who's running the country, but when you read the big thinkers and you start to understand how systems work nationally and internationally, you start to be able to paint a picture of what countries and what regions are going to emerge in 2030 as very uh, forward-looking, healthy, and advancing societies and what places are going to struggle. And therefore, what places, because of struggles, are going to have to fight over the limited resources. Because I'm sorry, I'd love to live in a world where humanity just gets along and shares everything. But we haven't figured that out since we showed up here. And, and I'm sorry, but I don't have any confidence that we will. So when we have scarcity and limited resources, what are we going to do? 
We're going to fight over it. We're going to fight, and the winner is going to determine who gets those resources. So that was my reflection on a year of war, a bit of an explanation about how this Ukraine conflict was a train we saw coming for 17 years and nobody paid attention. Uh, the Russian invasion is not justified, um, but you can understand Putin's logic as to why he had to do it and why he had to do it now. Again, if you read the big thinkers, you'll understand uh, you understand why NATO is doing what it's doing now and what the likely outcome in Europe is going to look like uh, post-2030, the reorganization of the world, and what all of that means for your individual preparedness journey where you are. So stay tuned. Keep the comments coming. I appreciate everything you have to offer. Stay safe. Take care of each other. And we'll see you on the next episode.